0: Hi folks, this is Jack Smirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, March 22nd, 2019. And I left yesterday I left you guys with a rewind show. If you can hear my voice today, this is not much better. As bad as the voice is. I'm really congested, and that just makes it not just like laryngitis problems, but like overall voice quality. And honestly, whatever this crud is, it sucks, and it's very hard to think. So I'm going to be doing a pretty abbreviated expert counsel show today, Uh, meaning that I will not have much follow-up on anybody's segment. I'll pretty much introduce them for you and let them speak for themselves. And while I'm going to do a pretty complex subject for my part today at the end, I'm going to do kind of a short version of it, and maybe a longer version will come out. This is a video in the future. It's like a jackpot on Facebook or something. So what are we going to talk about today? I've got a good lineup for you. Gary Collins is going to talk about how to avoid injuries when doing heavy weight training. Dixie Mills is going to talk about supplements for long-distance hikers. Uh, Jeff Lawton's got two today because one was really short and simple. He's got comp- cardboard compost and dealing with invasive grass in kind of food forest situations, Bermuda grass in particular. Uh, proper storage care and maintenance of generators from Derek Bonpietro. Uh, cooking with ancient grains from uh, Chef Keith Snow. Uh, last week I talked about a dog that you adopt, that you, uh, a puppy from next door type situation. So the guy uh, had a, uh, an opportunity to adopt a puppy, but the puppy was from a a female dog that lived directly next door to him and wouldn't there be any problems. I covered that best I could. Doc Kelly has some follow-up on that. I love when my council members do that, by the way, when they hear me do something, I want to add to that, you know, and and just go ahead and take some initiative. So great stuff from Doc Kelly on that. Uh, Then a question on dealing with Leos who enforce laws improperly. And even when shown that they are wrong in their enforcement, continue to do it. I'm not talking about maybe just in an individual instance, basically like we are going to continue to do this even though you've shown us that we're violating the law, that type of thing, from Officer Steve Wise. And I'm going to talk about the real reason for the Electoral College, the one no one's talking about, the one that tells us the real problem that we have today. And with that, we're going to go straight on into it today. Let's hear from Gary Collins on
1: avoiding injuries while doing heavy weight training. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, living off the grid, travel trailer living, RV living, paleo health, primal health, just all the good stuff. Make our lives better, hopefully, right? That's the goal. Um, also, remember, I have a new book, Living Off the Grid, that just came out. And on top of that, I just did a book with Mother Earth News called The Guide to Living Off the Grid, which is an accompaniment to my going off the grid, living off the grid, step-by-step approach that maps out your project and gives you all your cost estimates, step-by-step. I'm really proud of this book. It'll help you a lot if you want to plan and start living off the grid. All right, enough of that. Now with lifting to gain strength in dealing with an injury. Well, um, having pain in your elbow is probably tendonitis, I would guess. But when you lift heavy, if you're going to do a program that tells you to lift heavy all the time, you're going to have injuries. That's just the way it goes. When I used to train, uh, offensive linemen, competitive, very competitive, high, high level offensive linemen for football, we would only max out once to twice a month. We would, I would cycle them through their lifting. It's very important to build fast twitch muscles and slow twitch. Slow twitch is endurance. Fast twitch is strength. So it's always gr- good to have a balance between those two muscle types. Um, you know, all I can say is you can try and take uh, some turmeric, which helps with infl- inflammation, uh, maybe some glucosamine chondroitin, Uh, also try some CBD oil salve. I've done that. It it works really well or salve. Um, and you know, try those approaches. You need to give it rest. I don't encourage just the average Joe to go out and do power heavy lifting every single time they lift weights. Like I said, it's just, it's really hard on your body. The human body wasn't meant to, to you, to utilize loads like that constantly all the time, lift heavy things. Every once in a while. That's how we're kind of designed. Um, other than that, I, I really don't know what to tell you. I don't know the program. I didn't have time to go look through it step by step. But I'm guessing that it's a more heavier uh, lifting approach. But I would recommend a more encompassing approach. Light days, rest days, medium days, cardio days with no lifting. And then a heavy day thrown in between there. I have found that through decades to be the best process. Hope that helps, guys. Remember, I am an MSB member, so you get a discount code for 10% off your entire order at thesimplelifenow.com. And always leave your comments. Talk to you later.
0: All right, next up, I have a question for our backpacking outdoor-type specialist, Dixie Mills, who has, uh, for those that are new to the show, Dixie completed uh, just last year the Triple Crown of Hiking in America. That is the three longest trails in North America through hiking, the N10 multi-month approach on on all three. Uh, so it's uh, she spends a lot of time uh, out in the woods and uh, on her own. And uh, you kind of deal with situations with physical endurance when you do that. And so we have a question today about supplements for people that are doing things like that.
2: Hey, y'all. Jessica Mills, a.k.a. Dixie, here from Homemade Wanderlust, back again to answer a question about backpacking. Today's question comes in from Jim, whose trail name is Drop Top. A trail name is a nickname that backpackers tend to give each other, for those of y'all who are wondering. But Drop Top asks, Hey Dixie, what supplements would you recommend for a long-distance hike specifically for joint and muscle pain? Details. I through-hiked the AT in 2017 and i am starting the PCT in April with my girlfriend for a second through-hike. The biggest issue I dealt with was knee pain. I used a mixture of turmeric and vitamin I, which is ibuprofen in trail terms, To make it to the end, but I would like to reduce my ibuprofen intake. I plan on using trekking poles more diligently and have started taking Tamiflex from GNC. Do you have any other pointers? Thanks for all your help and congrats on your induction to the expert council. Well, thank you, Drop Top, and congratulations to you for your completion of the AT and for your upcoming through hike of the PCT. My first suggestion today is fish oil. It's rich in omega-3 fatty acids, which have potent anti-inflammatory properties. And for me, from personal experience with dealing with, hey, I have really sore knees on the AT, and now I want to do better on the PCT than just popping ibuprofen all the time, fish oil really helped me a lot with knee pain. As long as I took it daily and consistently like I was instructed on the bottle. Now, you're going to get what you pay for, with fish oil and you need to make sure that you have something that's heat stable that will protect it from being oxidized in the warmer temperatures, especially when you're in the desert on the Pacific Crest Trail and in exposed areas where sun is just baking down on your pack. The brand that I used I found on Amazon and it is Vital Choices Wild Alaskan Sockeye Salmon. And I was going to suggest turmeric but you're already taking that or at least a supplement that has that in it. So I would also consider something topical. I have never used essential oils on trail, but some of my fellow backpackers have, and they tell me that they are helpful by massaging the oils into their joints. Somebody suggested to me Deep Blue by doTERRA, and it's got a mixture of wintergreen, peppermint, blue chamomile, etc. Again, I've never used this personally, but it might be worth a shot. Something that I have used topically, though, was on the CDT in Colorado. Uh, Actually, a friend of mine picked up some CBD oil and menthol kind of mixture. It came in a stick form that you could just rub on and then massage into your skin. And you'll be in California, Oregon, and Washington, so there should be access to plenty of stores where people there can probably help you pick out something for your joint pain. Next, I would say in your diet, try to avoid sugar, which you're probably laughing right now because what through hacker ever avoids sugar? But really, if you can, try to reduce some of your sugar intake because there are actually studies that show that diets high in sugar can cause inflammation in the body. So if you can try to shift some of your snacks to... More jerky or nuts or saltier snacks rather than what I love, like powdered donuts and Snickers. You might find that that helps out your joint pain a little bit. At least if you kind of start off that way in the beginning and give your joints time to get, you know, back in the swing of things and then slowly introduce more sugar and you can see how it goes from there. While I'm mentioning horrible diets of through hackers though, Another supplement that you might want to consider taking, although it's not for joint and muscle pain, is a probiotic. Because we eat all of this terrible food, it's a good idea to kind of help our good gut flora to stay more in balance. And make sure that if you do carry a probiotic that it's something that's also safe in the heat and doesn't have to be refrigerated. Those are the only suggestions I have for supplements and topical treatments. But keep in mind that the Appalachian Trail is a much more rugged trail in terms of elevation change. The total gain slash loss for the AT is 515,000 feet, where the Pacific Crest Trail is only 315,000 feet, and it's graded for livestock. So all of that hand-over-hand climbing that you dealt with at certain areas of the Appalachian Trail, you're not going to experience that same type of thing on the Pacific Crest Trail. And I'm sure that your pack is slowly getting lighter as you get more familiar with backpacking. I know as I transitioned from the AT to the PCT, I found myself culling certain luxury items like camp shoes and the little town dress that I used to wear while I was doing laundry in town. I went from a full-length sleeping pad to a shorter pad. Of course, some of those upgrades You know you've got to have the budget for it and i'm not familiar with what your budget is on that but those are just some things to think about too that of course the weight of your pack is going to help reduce some stress on your joints finally you can work on strengthening your knees and the muscles around them i'm sure that there are a plethora of videos out on youtube that could help you with this but i knew a girl who was suffering from runner's knee and she told me if you find anybody who's having knee issues out on the trail tell them to check out the run experience channel on youtube because those folks work with physical therapists to put out videos that'll help runners with issues that they might be having and while the channel is centered around running i mean when you're on a through hack you're using a lot of the same joints and muscles so it might be something that's useful for you and even though your start date is approaching quickly in april You could start now, and maybe there are some exercises you can even continue while you're out on trail to kind of help strengthen those knees overall. I hope some of that is helpful to you, and thank you so much for sending in the question drop-top, and I wish you and your girlfriend the best of luck out on your PCT thru-hike this year. If anybody else has questions related to backpacking, camping, nature, vlogging, YouTube, any of that stuff, I will be happy to answer those. Just get them into Jack. And if you want to learn more about what I do or my backpacking experiences, or if you're thinking about getting out into nature and backpacking, then check out my channel, Homemade Wanderlust on YouTube. I'm actually doing a two-week series right now where I'm putting out a video every day that is some kind of -of back-to-the-basics-of-backpacking kind of topic, just to help people get encouraged to get out there because if I can do it, other people can too. Everyone had to start somewhere. Thank y'all so much again, and I will see you next time.
0: So there's there's three things I'll add to that, and try to be brief with it. Save my voice here, but number one is uh, you really might want to look at taking a good quality multivitamin when you're on any kind of extended situation like this. Um, diets fluctuate in these situations. You know you're going to eat this particular backpacker food and, eat, and it, it just goes all over the place. Uh, I never through hiked uh, uh the trails, but I did hike when I got out of the army uh, from central Pennsylvania to northern New Hampshire on the a t and you go through phases you go through things like i 'm going to eat right and all you you know you 're into town every time you can get there and then there 's times where you 're you know hundred percent on your prepared meals and stuff like that and uh the thing is that no matter where you're doing it, good or bad, you're going to end up with certain nutrient deficiencies during a period of time like this because of the ebb and flow and because you're putting demands on your body that you normally do not. Even a relatively slow pace on a long-distance multi-week hike, let's say uh, 10 miles a day, is a pretty relatively easy pace to maintain over multiple days. Um, it's, there are parts of the trail, like she was saying, where it changes, right? But overall, yeah. Um It's it's a lot of stress on the body And you probably need more Than you're getting from your food So that would be my number one My number two on all the topical stuff she mentioned I would never go anywhere Honestly uh, Where I would have to look after myself For any length of time Without having some uh, comfrey product Uh, Like Dr. Christopher's is the one that I recommend And If you're not making your own I think it's the best thing on the market It has some other stuff in it besides the comfrey But for scrapes and bumps and stuff like that It is fantastic And uh, I've found few things that relieve joint pain any better than concrete. except for the ones you mentioned, CBD oil. CBD oil, good products of CBD oil, especially topicals, are really great for joint pain as well. Uh, last, but certainly not least, make sure you're staying hydrated. And there's a difference between being dehydrated versus being hydrated, like it's not one or the other. It's one of those things that I've, I've talked about other things like this. It's not a flip of the switch. Like, I'm fully hydrated. Click, I'm fully dehydrated, and I'm going to die now. A lot of times people do not think they're dehydrated, but they are. Uh, there may be 10%. and It's an arbitrary number I'm using, but let's just say that Optimum you know, is uh, a, a, a 10, right? So you're at 90 but you're at 90 repeatedly, week after week after week, on a long duration, any physical long duration situation, you begin to have problems first in the muscles in the joints. And the way it works is it really is a muscle problem, but then the muscle problem creates tension. The tension causes a joint problem. So making sure that you're drinking more than you need on any kind of long duration, sustained physical situation whether it 's hiking or not is incredibly important, and I know you guys have all heard like you're, by the time you 're thirsty, you really are dehydrated, and that 's true, but you can feel relatively okay, you still should be monitoring your total amount of water consumed, and one of the number one things i 've seen cause painful joints, painful muscles, cramps, etc, and slow the duration of healing from other injuries is dehydration so Thought I would add those. Next up, i got a question here, two for Jeff Lawton. Uh, One on dealing with invasive Bermuda grass, something we have lots of around here, uh, and another one on composting cardboard. So I'm just going to play them back-to-back since the grass one is really short. Jeff, take it away.
3: Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, and um, coming to you from Australia. And um, the drought's broken, and we've got a bit of rain, so I'm out there planting food for us um, in, a, in, a, in a fast-track way. But I have a question here, and it's coming from someone who's uh, interested in getting a different kind of bedding going. Um, they have 20 acres, and they say they have 25 cows, 12 pigs, 8 horses, 75 chickens, and 30 ducks. And that is quite a lot of animals on 20 acres. Um, and they're finding bedding hard to find and, um, and, and expensive. Um, so they're thinking about if they could shred cardboard and use it for bedding, then compost it. And um, it could make it cheap for them because it's available. And I expect it is because all over the world, the Chinese have stopped uh, importing cardboard, recycled cardboard and paper for because they've got their own wood products now they've planted so many trees so we've all got surplus cardboard and and paper now we quite like it we use it quite a lot especially as sheet mulch Australia has 68 million spare tons now that have before been shipped to China so I expect you've got it as well this is um, one hour south of Chicago in Illinois so um, and they say they have uh, an area to spread it once it's broken down well, I think if you shred it the right way and it's nice and dry when you... And if you can get it to be fluffy because you don't want it to pack down. The thing with wet cardboard and paper is it will pack down pretty solid. So if it's nice and dry and fluffy um, when you add it as bedding, so it absorbs uh, the sloppy manures and, and urine um, and soaks it up and then you change it and you've got that much sips, I think it could be a good thing. Uh, it's high in carbon... It's actually a fungal food, so you can have a fungal dominated compost, which is great for growing trees. And that's obviously what you need to do. You need to direct the composted material towards tree growth. And you want tree growth that is useful to um, feed feed your animals in all their forms, uh, especially the larger animals, but all of the animals, um, and have other purposes. Um, I don't know if your climate is okay with uh, thornless honey locust, Robinia pseudo-acacia. Um, it's a, a great legume. It's a great forage. Um, it's got a high-protein seed and pod. Um, and um, the, fen- the, the, the poles make great fence posts. So by uh, long-lasting fence posts in the ground. So you can then uh, intensify your... Um, Cell grazing and your animal systems, so that you can move fast, tight packed, and really spread your, your your manures when the animals are on the ground, um, and you can reduce the pressure on the pasture by directing that composted manured cardboard towards specifically valuable tree growth. And of course, there's nothing stopping you then also diversifying into other productive trees um, to make your your overall system. Uh, more sustainable because of the interactive diversity so there you go um thank you hi jeff here again and we have another question uh, in relation to bermuda grass in food forests. where you get any sunny spot um, it takes over and smothers evident well what do we do with something like that Um, we try and make it non sunny <laughs> so it's not so favored disfavor the problem um, and then we use something that's more rampant than bermuda grass we use something that's going to out compete the bermuda grass but something we can work with that's usable mulch easy to chop um, here I use sweet potato vine. I use Singapore daisy, which people are very afraid of. But I, I, I deal with rampant with rampant I out-compete rampant with something more rampant, but that's more user-friendly to me that I can control and use as mulch and then shade it out as the forest gets up and up and up. Most of these things get completely shaded out when your canopy starts touching and you get that sort of complete... Productive ecosystem in position. There you go.
0: So, just real quick on the, uh, the Bermuda grass. So, there's a lot of things that can be used in this situation. If you're in a moist climate, because uh, one of the real advantages Bermuda grass has is it's very drought tolerant. So, if you're in a moist climate or an irrigated environment, mint is one of the few things I know that will fully out-compete Bermuda grass. But it needs more moisture than the Bermuda grass does. But if it's got sufficient moisture, mint uh, will totally outgrow Bermuda grass all day, all night. The other thing to think about is, are there grasses that are less of a problem that will survive through your winter and stay evergreen. Now, in some climates, that's not an issue, not something you can do. But, for instance, down here, uh, Bermuda grass goes dormant and turns brown, uh, where something like Mondo grass, uh, which does spread slowly, but where it is, it is, and it doesn't give up easily, uh, stays evergreen through the winter. So you can look to other things, uh, that can handle the sun. That's bringing the me- Bermuda grass. And if you can find something for your climate that doesn't go dormant, that means that every winter the the, the table gets more and more stacked in your direction because you, that plant goes all through the winter. And as that Bermuda is just beginning to come out of hibernation, that plant is kicking off its major growth spree. That's that's another way to look at uh, handling that situation. Uh, next up, got a question on the care and maintenance of generators for Derek Bonpietro. Hey, TSP
4: listeners. This is Derek with AffordableDCGenerators.com, answering all of your automotive and mechanical questions. I've got one today about generators. Let's dig into the question. Thanks to Jack, I now have secondary and tertiary backup generators sitting in boxes in my garage. I have questions regarding your long-term storage and maintenance. My questions are... Should I leave the new generators in the boxes until needed? They would have a greater barter value if they were verifiably unused. But what if they are missing components, damaged in transit, or have some other issue they would keep them from working? If so, they wouldn't be an effective backup. If I unbox both of the backups and start them to make sure they work, then I'm committing the ongoing maintenance of all three generators." If I leave fuel in them, I have to be sure to use stable and drain the fuel if they will be unused for an extended period. Sometimes fuel lines degrade even with stable mixed in the fuel. It's inevitable that I will get busy with life and not give all three of them the ongoing maintenance they need. What are your suggestions regarding long-term generator storage and maintenance? These are great questions. Let's get right into it. First of all, I recommend unboxing them. You've got a product sitting on the shelf, you want to make sure that it works. If you've got a faulty unit, now is the time to return it and get a good unit. Commissioning them means getting oil and fuel in them, everything topped off, ready to go, start them up, let them run, put a load on them, make sure that they operate correctly, and then shut them down. I would also keep the packaging, so if you were concerned about selling them down the road, we always have that packaging material ready to rock and roll. Let's talk about long-term storage and common reasons why generator fails. There's really three big reasons how generators fail. First one is valve adjustment going out over time. Obviously, as the engine runs, the valves wear, and these require periodic maintenance and adjustment. Fuel contamination, another huge one. Letting fuel sit in the tank or in the carburetor, very bad. And the third one is probably going to be a voltage regulator or a capacitor failure. And that's going to be on the electrical side. So you're going to get no power output where the other two are really going to be in more of an engine mechanical issue. So the engine's not starting or not running right. Let's talk about the valve adjustment first. You're going to want to do this probably 25 to 50 hours into the generator running. It's going to need a set of feeler gauges and a wrench to get in there. You're going to have to pull the valve cover off. So be prepared with a valve cover gasket or maybe some silicone sealer to Put that back on. Uh, not exactly a hard procedure. There's probably plenty of YouTube videos, or if you get a service manual, it's going to walk you through it. One of the most basic adjustments you can do on an engine. A few hundred hours on the unit, you're going to probably have to do this again. But what happens is people don't adjust the valves, and then the valves stick open because the clearance is not high enough in the valve train. And so what happens is when that piston comes up to top dead to center on compression, it loses all that compression out of one of the valves, so it's going out the intake or the exhaust and you're not getting the power output. Or the engine may not even start if that valve is open far enough. So this is probably one of the biggest ones. Neglected, not being done at the proper interval, and then obviously the engine doesn't start. The next one is fuel contamination. Uh, I would avoid all of the fuel additives altogether for your generator and just not store fuel in it. So that means that if your generator is going to sit for a couple of months, keeping fuel in the tank probably not necessarily an issue, but you're certainly going to want to get that carburetor empty. What that means is that while it's running and not necessarily backing up any loads, what you're going to want to do is shut the fuel petcock off that's at the bottom of the fuel tank And that's going to allow the carburetor to drain itself out. So the engine's going to run and sputter and eventually die, probably a minute or two. And that means the carburetor's empty. So there's no fuel left in the bowl that can corrode and plug up the jets. What's happening is that fuel is corroding, and then within the small orifices in in the carburetor, it's sucking up the debris, and now you're blocking fuel flow into the engine. So you're going to get a a no-start condition or you're going to get a a rough running engine. If you're going to store this generator longer than a couple of months, probably your best bet, drain the fuel tank, especially if you have a metal tank. poly tank, not necessarily that big of a deal, but pull the fuel line off. If you got to buy a foot or two of hose of the same size, put it on there, open it up, let it drain into a can, and use that fuel somewhere else. You're using Jack's method, turning your fuel over, that's great, But you don't necessarily want to keep the fuel in the generator tank itself. So, again, longer than a couple of months, empty that tank out as well. No fuel in there whatsoever to corrode and create uh, issues. And the third one that I wanted to mention was causing an electrical problem. No power output is typically going to be a voltage regulator. Uh, on an AVR unit, or you're going to have a brushless generator, which is going to have capacitors. Both of these should be an item that you stock up, especially if you only have one or maybe two generators. If the case you have three, you got some backup units, not necessarily as big of a deal. but these are fairly inexpensive components that you should probably have on hand if you only have a generator and you rely on it for your your backup power. I would also highly recommend getting some spare spark plugs, you know an oil and filter. If you do have a voltage-regulated unit, getting the brushes as well with the AVR unit. So that way, if you do have a power issue, you can swap these out. This is probably going to be the number one failure for no power output, along with the capacitors if you have the brushless style. And that will get you at least up and running. Any other type of failures within the generator itself, on the alternator assembly is going to be catastrophic and require lots of work or something like that rotor stator etc so you're probably going to end up buying a new unit anyway but the likelihood of those failing is is slim to none compared to the others same thing with the engine the odds of it throwing a connecting rod out the side of the block is very very rare the odds of the valves going out of adjustment and, and making your generator fail and not start highly likely So we want to take care of these very, very common items and make sure we have spare parts to address them. It also wouldn't hurt to get in there and make sure that you know how to do this work. So don't necessarily wait till the last minute to have to make these adjustments during a storm. Do it in your garage on a weekend. Get comfortable with it, even if you're just going through the motions. Now, if you're running this generator and you're draining the fuel out of it and storing it on a shelf somewhere, that's perfectly fine. It's It's in like-new condition as long as that fuel's out of it. Now, if you're letting it sit for probably six months to a year, maybe longer, I would recommend fogging the engine. So what this means is you're going to get fogging oil that's going to have a little plastic tube, and you're going to pull the spark plug out and spray this oil down into the cylinder. And this is going to keep the piston and the combustion chamber and all of that from corroding. And this is really great long-term storage. Again, if you know the unit works and there's no fuel in the assembly, this thing will last forever just sitting there. One thing I do want to talk about is proper engine shutdown sequence. When you're shutting a generator off, you never want to do it under load. That means that reduce the loads or open the breaker on the generator so that way it's running, and then shut the engine off. And shut the engine off by cutting its fuel supply so it drains the carburetor out. Do not shut a generator off with the breaker on and supporting loads. You'll demagnetize the rotor, which will give you issues down the road. I hope this answers your question. Guys, if you have anything related to this or automotive or you're looking to outfit a vehicle or recommendations on a certain repair, send that question in. Be more than happy to help you. Speaking of generators, I'd like to introduce my new startup company. It is affordabledcgenerators.com. We're very close to launching our product. This is a kit that will allow you to mount up your alternator of choice, 612, 24, or even 48 volt systems. Inexpensive to compare to what's on the market right now. So instead of spending a thousand to $2,500, put your own kit together with a professional build quality. Check it out. I'm really excited for you guys to see this at theaffordabledcgenerators.com. And drop me your email. I'll keep you up to date on the launch and pricing, et cetera, as it comes out. Looking to do it in the next couple of weeks. Thanks, guys.
0: Next up, I have a question for Chef Keith Snow on unusual grains.
5: <clears throat> Here's another one, Jack. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with harvesteating.com. I wanted to talk... About cooking with funny grains. Now I get an email the other day, uh, from a dude in Wisconsin and he's been sort of storing and buying, you know, what he calls funny grains, things like farro and couscous and so he's wondering you know, not used to cooking with those type of grains, what you can do with them. And I know that uh, he's got quite a bit of faro on hand. And that's a very, uh, what you would call an ancient grain. It's a member of the wheat family. And how I like to cook with that are two ways. This, this is a, a grain that does well in both sweet and savory applications. Now, if I'm doing some of this faro to make like a faro cereal, which I absolutely love in the winter... I will cook it, and it's usually one cup of farro, and you're going to want to rinse grains like this. Um, A lot of the so-called anti-nutrients that we read about in grains tend to be sort of on the surface. So soaking them and rinsing them, these are good practices, but um, what you do is basically just rinse it under cold water in a fine mesh strainer to get everything that might be on the outside off. And this is very critical if you're working with quinoa. Um, and that's another grain that, you know, people have done a lot more with recently, but, you know, they're still, I mean, what grains are they used to? You know, rice and oatmeal, basically. So they they don't really spend too much time with these. But so let's say you've got your farro. You do, um once it's rinsed, you're going to put it in a pot with one. Uh So one cup of farro with three cups of liquid. Now, if you're doing something that's going to be savory, maybe a bre- breakfast cereal, you certainly could cook it with a little bit of milk, maybe uh, two cups of water and a cup of milk. If you wanted to keep it vegan or vegetarian, you know, almond milk, um oat milk, those kind of things work. As a matter of fact, I have made some farro using uh an oat milk. It was called Oatly, and I, I just found it in the supermarket. It's rather tasty stuff, a touch sweet for my likings, but... Um, I cook the farro in that, and it's nice. And once the farro, you cook it, bring it to a boil, um, you know, covered, and then uncovered. I like to put a teeny pinch of salt in it, and you're going to cook it about 25 minutes. <clears throat> now, whatever water or liquid, and this is over like a low to medium-low heat, so you don't want it raging but just, you know, bubbling away. And those grains will soften up and become nutty and quite wonderful. You just... Um, you know, if you're doing the breakfast cereal, you're going to want to keep that liquid in there and then you can sweeten it up with, you know, maybe maple syrup. You can put fruit in it. Um, a little heavy cream always is lovely in my mind. And you have a very hearty filling, you know, and sort of what I would call rustic type of breakfast cereal. Now, I also like to cook faro with, um, different broths, you know, like chicken broth or even beef broth, depending upon how I'm going to use it in one way. Um, I like to use it. And I've been testing sort of a vegetarian version, so I do do cook it in a chicken broth. Same process, rinse it, you know, one to three ratio. And then when it's done, i like to dump it out on a sheet tray and spread it out for it to cool off. You don't want to leave it in there too long because you'll wind up with mush. So, you want individual tender grains, if at all possible. Again, about 25 minutes is uh, the sweet spot. So, once that's done and I cool it off, then I start thinking about building this into what I would call a faro bowl. And, um. You know, sautéed greens, you know, beet greens, kale, any type of uh, hardy greens, even things like arugula where you wouldn't want to cook those. You wouldn't want to cook the arugula. You'd want to use that fresh. But parsley, herbs, all those type of things go well in here. So I put this thing together usually with a couple of different varieties of heirloom, cherry and grape tomatoes. I'll put in some uh, cucumber, um I like to put a little bit of extra virgin olive oil, maybe even some um, sweet corn if I have it on hand that's non-GMO, maybe a little bit of arugula, the greens. Um, you could put some raisins, nuts, whatever, and you mix this whole thing up. Again, a little olive oil and um, some lemon juice gets these tasting nice. You're going to want to salt this as well. And you know if you want to go crazy, roasted red peppers, maybe some feta cheese, you could take it in a million different ways. But the basis of it is your um, cooked farro, you know, with with a broth like that. And you could use a veggie broth, too. And then whatever assorted vegetables and greens, you know, maybe in the winter you want to put in, you know, some roasted carrots and some, you know, um braised greens, sort of a heavier thing. And then as you get towards the summer, you can lighten it up with... um you know, cherry tomatoes, cucumbers, roasted peppers, you know, roasted zucchini, whatever. And you make this kind of farro bowl. So you've got the base of the nice hearty grains and then a lot of different flavors that go through there for texture and substance. So I hope that helps give you an idea on how to cook with some of these funny grains. And I want to encourage everybody to check out the Harvest Eating Podcast. You can find it in all your podcast players. And uh, Jack, I want to thank you for what you do and hope everybody has a great weekend. Take care.
0: On a normal week with my love of cooking, I would have more follow-up. Maybe I'll talk about this subject even though I'm not much of a grain guy anymore uh, in a future episode. Today, we're just going to move on uh, got a follow up here on a question that I answered last week for someone adopting a puppy from a next door neighbor who owns the dog's mother. Uh, Doc Kelly had some follow up on that.
6: Hi, Jack, and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. I just wanted to provide a quick follow up to the question that Jack had answered the other day about the puppy that would be coming from the litter next door and if there were any problems with keeping a puppy from a litter in the yard next to the mother. And you know, just of as far as quick things, the biggest thing I can think of is it depends a little bit on the age of the puppy and how attached the mom is to it. You know, if you have the dog it's mainly indoors and it's just going outside for house training sort of purposes and isn't spending tons of time unsupervised out in the yard, it may not really be a issue at all. Um, if he, the puppy is outside more, then you may have more if the, those dogs are outside and it's there and it's used to being with the litter and trying to get back and forth. Um, you know, I could see potential problems as far as digging to try and get back and forth to there. If the, um, you know, if the moms, if they're trying to, you know, can they scale the fence? I mean, I think those things are rare, but it's stuff that I would be, cautious about, you know, and just paying attention to if they have unsupervised time outside. Um, The other thing would be that you had mentioned that um, you didn't intend to breed the dog. I would caution as far as the timing on if you plan to spay or neuter the dog you get. Um, If that dog is intact and the ones on the other side of the fence are intact, they can reach sexual maturity by even six months of age sometimes. It's often later, but it could happen that early and dogs don't care if your daddy's your uncle or your mom's your girlfriend you will have some messed up puppies real quick if um, the timing gets off on either of that if um, they can also they can scale fences do all sorts of creative things that a chain-length fence is no barrier for mating as they say in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. So I uh, would be cautious about that aspect, but that's that's pretty easily handled. So um, watch out for that. The other thing you mentioned is that you knew that the mom had a really good personality and was really sweet, and um, th- which I think it's at a nice advantage that you happen to know the personality of the parent. And most of the time if you're getting a random dog from a shelter, you won't know the personality of either the parents or any temperament. And so even if you don't know the dad's temperament, at least you're seeing the mom. So I think that is a really nice advantage. And you can kind of see how the puppies are initially and you know as far as what their socialization has been like and everything. And I agree with Jack. I think pit bulls do need to be really well trained and they're a terrier so they can, you know, terriers can be crazy. I mean, I love pitties. I think they can be the sweetest, most, you know, they can be great dogs. Um, but you know, there is a lot of potential. They got a lot of jaw power. So, um, just like with any dog, they need to have training and especially with big dogs that they, that you know, when they will follow commands to, you know, to, to chill out basically and to not be you know, going after things that they're not supposed to. So, um, those would be my thoughts on it initially. Um, but otherwise it sounds like a really a really nice situation and you'll get to have a really good puppy so hopefully it all works out for you and if anything pops up let us know and if you have any other furry pet questions please send them on my way and i hope everybody has a great week thanks bye
0: next up have a question for officer steve wise on dealing with law enforcement officers uh that are enforcing uh, restrictions that aren't really supposed to be there uh, in this case uh, an issue with going left on red uh, onto a one-way road and people being cited for that when it's actually legal in the municipality
7: good evening jack and tsp listeners this is steve wise your retired law enforcement officer offering advice and answering your law enforcement related questions jack has forwarded me an older question and it comes from mike in louisiana He asks, what can I do, if anything, when a sheriff's office refuses to recognize certain laws? And I'm going to paraphrase Mike's details because he provided even a copy of the law in question that he was talking about. Mike said he found a reference in state law that it's okay to make a left on red when you're turning from a one-way street onto another one-way street, assuming there aren't any signs warning against such a turn. The local sheriff's office doesn't recognize this law, even when he showed it to him, He was able to show it to a state police uh, training officers, and they didn't first believe him at first, but then they recognized the document that he provided, and they said, hey, you're actually right. So that's a good thing. But his local sheriff's office still doesn't want to recognize the law, even though he's telling them, hey, the state police is recognizing it. So Mike, let's, let's talk about this and in the short, you can't force a sheriff's office to recognize a law or provide training based on a document that you bring them. But let's look at some of your options here. I want to make it kind of clear here that all law enforcement officers are required to attend a certain amount of training, but you're going to find that this is going to vary widely from department to department. But generally there's a state minimum for you know, officers to have a certain amount of training. So in my state, that minimum requirement is six weeks of training. Six weeks of training. That's everything from the laws to to how to use a firearm to defensive driving. I mean, that's everything. My department, when I went through my training program, the training program was six months long. All right, so six weeks or six months. Much longer period of training. And there's no way that an officer working in a department that only requires six weeks of training will have the same level of knowledge, skill, and ability and training that the one does that has six months of experience. Because of that, officers are required to get a lot of on-the-job training. Your smaller departments will be way behind in their knowledge of the law. The smaller the department, the less likely you'll run into certain types of crime on a regular basis, so this leads to poor performance when those critical cases do occur. Remember, the attorneys and judges hearing the cases have years of training before they end up working in the court system. You know, to become a lawyer, you've got to, you know, how many years? What, six years to become a lawyer? Then you've got to pass the bar, all this testing. We're talking with people that have six weeks to six months of training. So officers, they don't have the same level of training, and they're going to make mistakes because of that. That's why we have judges and attorneys to make sure the laws are properly applied when it comes to court. If I were trying to get a department to recognize a specific law, um, the best option I could come up with for you is to send a letter to the state attorney general cite the number of violations written by officers for this specific violation then ask the state attorney general to send a formal letter to uh, about the law and answer you know, be prepared to answer any questions that they have but that's coming from the state attorney general not from an average citizen once again you know it's a level of knowledge and ability that the attorney general should have to be able to educate the law enforcement jurisdiction so I would never advise you to hand a law enforcement officer a copy of any law that you printed out on a piece of paper. Just because you printed out the law from a government website, eh, you know, there's it's still possible that it it wasn't properly updated. The officer doesn't really have the ability to validate on the street. Uh there could be missing punctuation, and there could be all sorts of typos. It really does make a difference. And you know, if you think Punctuation doesn't matter. Uh, Has anybody else read the book, Eat, Shoots, and Leaves? Punctuation does matter. There's also a possibility that a written law that you may print out from the Internet has been overruled by a case law. Case law comes from court rulings that uh, say, hey, this law is unconstitutional, or maybe the way it was written can't be enforced. So even though we have some laws that are written, it doesn't mean that they're actually still valid. So there have been laws written to ban gun ownership in certain parts of the country. Can we talk about the Heller decision that the Supreme Court uh, basically saying the city of Chicago couldn't restrict people from owning firearms? So, you know, these things do happen. And that law remains on the books in Illinois until it gets removed by the legislature. But the Supreme Court decision has overruled that. That's case law. We also get cases where a department decides that they're not going to enforce a law. Um, we've seen that most recently in a series of sheriffs deciding not to enforce a law because they believe it's unconstitutional. And uh, we've seen that with a lot of sheriffs in Washington state. They're refusing to enforce a gun law because they believe that it's unconstitutional. And a lot of us are going to consider that a good thing. So my advice, obey the laws. But if you're stopped and you think the officer is wrong, don't try to force that situation on him at the, on the street level. Don't try to hand him a piece of document that says, hey, here's what the law is. Read the law. That You're not going to change his mind or her mind. Uh, and it might actually make your situation worse. So take your legal arguments to the court where the judge and attorneys that have years of legal experience can hear your case. I hope that helps. And remember, laws are different in every state. It's your responsibility to know the laws and obey them. My comments are based on my years of experience in law enforcement, so just be safe out there.
0: So I have one thing to emphatically agree with and then another one that might actually change everything about this situation. So let's start out with the first part. I emphatically agree with do not push your your luck with a law enforcement officer who is citing you for a traffic violation. The big reasons are, one, that cop doesn't know who you are. He has no idea if you might be somebody that's off your rocker. These guys do take a lot of shit from people today. Some very justifiably so. For those that haven't heard me before, I might sound very pro-Leo right here. I am probably one of the hardest people on law enforcement on the planet. Uh, I have referred to people as oath breaking pieces of shit on this show multiple times. Law enforcement officers do their job poorly and injure or kill people. And it's how I've referred to them. So I'm not, not, this is not boot licking here. This is common effing sense. You are stopped by a cop. He says you did this thing. You say, I didn't do this thing. Okay. He either cites you or he doesn't. You say, I did this thing. But this thing is legal, and here's where it says this thing is legal. Okay? He either, bull- I'm okay with that. Okay? At that point, he's probably still not gonna admit that he's wrong. He's gonna do one or two things. If you're polite, and you're not like, look at it, you don't know, you don't do that shit. Don't talk to a cop in any manner that you wouldn't want to be spoken to yourself. Okay? Because that's just how you should treat people. So that part, he's either going to cover his bullshit, and know he's wrong, and say, well, I'm going to let you go with a warning this time. If that happens, shut up and leave. Or he's going to say, tell it to the judge, write you up, and say, here, sign your citation, that you acknowledge that I gave it to you. Sign a citation, and tell it to the judge. Because if you're right, it's probably the number one way you can get the change you're looking for. Because when they're citing people who are then challenging them in traffic court, and traffic court overturns it and says, Officer, didn't you know that this was legal? Now you've got their attention. right? So that's, that's the part that I emphatically agree with. Now here's the addition that I have, and I'm surprised Steve didn't say this. So you're getting a ticket from a sheriff. A sheriff is a county-level officer. The state has a law that says that it's okay to go left on red on a one-way street. This makes perfect sense, by the way. And it is the case in Texas as well. In Texas, you can go left on red. If you're pulling onto a one-way street, you can treat a red light like a stop sign for the left turn, not for going straight through. If you think about it, most places you can go right on red because it, it produces it, it produces the least amount of risk in crossing that intersection, because you don't really cross it.
7: <clears throat>
0: if we make it so the traffic can only move from right to left as you're looking at it, then left becomes the same mitigated risk. So I, I don't know that every state has this, but most states actually do have a law that says you can turn left on red. Totally believe this guy does. I don't believe it was changed. It's about all the stuff Steve said, it was a challenge. It is not something to be challenged in the Supreme Court. However, how do you know there's not a county law that says you can't do it? There may not be. There may not be, but there might be a county a law that says in such, in such county you can't do this. Now, that, that would be challengeable in traffic court because how would you know? Generally, driving laws are the same across the entire state because they have to be, right? So if that's what they wanted to do, for some reason they felt this wasn't safe, then they would need to put up a sign that says something like, no turn on red, which is also something that can be in place. I had a friend. He got a ticket for going right on red. When he told me where he got it, I'm like, well, there's a sign that says, because there's a very familiar intersection. Like, there's a sign there that says no red on red. He said, they can't do this. So of course they can. One reason or another, they believe that intersection is more dangerous So they say, in this case, you can't do it. So I don't think that's a case here. But you do have to understand that you might be citing state law to a law enforcement official who is enforcing a county-level or city-level law because we always have to remember this country. People don't believe me when I say it, but here's another example. The smaller the body of government, the more oppressive the government because all the county can do is add laws to what the state already said. The county, if if the state had a non left-on-red law. doesn't apply in, you know, fill in state blank. The county can't say, well, it applies here, but they can add another law. Now, again, in this type of situation, usually it's not the case. As far as I know, left-on-red is legal everywhere unless otherwise indicated by a sign. And there's a, a conscious effort to keep driving regulations uniform because your Florida license is good in California and it's good in Pennsylvania, it's good in Washington, et cetera. So, <clears throat> Just some additional thoughts on that. Now, let's talk about something far more complex. Right now, there's a lot of talk about abolishing the uh, the electoral college and going to a popular vote in this country. This is a very um, hotly debated topic right now. Some people are very sure that they're right on both sides. But I don't think, I haven't yet to see anybody really discuss the real, kind of, the real reason for this. Um, Of course, there's people on the left that every single thing that has to do with any level of states' rights, it's got to be about slavery. Slavery was a single issue at the time of the Constitution was written. It was a single issue. It is not like the only thing that the southern states cared about was slavery. There were other things they cared about. And it's not like the only states that had small populations were in the South. In general, the smaller population states were in the South. But there are little states in the North, okay? And at the time, they had relatively lighter populations, some of them. So you have to actually put yourself in the position of the United States of America Under a period of time where it it existed under the Articles of Confederation, that was the first central government of the United States. Now, the truth is that the Articles of Confederation formed such a loose central government that all the states, because it couldn't have never happened if all the states didn't agree to some level, that, you know, there's just certain things that we have to worry about, and there's certain things that we want to accomplish that we need more strength in our federal government to be able to do that and be taken seriously in the world and protect ourselves from aggressive parties like the French, like the potential of the English coming back, etc. So they decided they needed a more cohesive central government. This is why it was done in the first place. And you can't look at the electoral college without looking at the other elected branches of government you have to look at the totality of what voting and democracy meant at the time and one more time stop saying the united states is not a democracy we're not a democracy we're a republic republic we are a representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic that's what we are there are no direct democracies in existence today in the world at the state level they don't exist there's no such place where everybody votes on every single thing. Everybody elects representatives, and the constitution lays out then how those representatives perform their duties, how long they stay elected for, how often they have to stand re-election, if they have any limits. This is how there's over ninety constitutional republics in the world today. Ninety. The Constitutional Republic by itself is not magic. Okay? And it's not like we were the first one either. The Dutch were a republic long before anybody even thought about what we would become, all right? The Greeks had a republic, okay? You got it? So all these states get together, and they were afraid. Even Don't think that, like, well, you know, New York, Pennsylvania, they were 100% on board because they had the bigger populations. They could tell the South what to do. Everybody was concerned about giving the central government too much power. And the real reason is what the purpose of the federal government was to be at the time. Now, before we go any further, one more thing you have to understand is the federal government is not a party to the contract that is the Constitution of the United States. The, the, the Articles of Confederation government played no role whatsoever in the signing of the Constitution. The states got together. And made a new central government. Dissolving the old one under the Articles of Confederation. They created it new. And if you think about it. If you, me, and two other people formed a company. We would get together and write up a shareholders agreement. An operating agreement. And we would establish the corporation by registering it. And the agreement would be between us. The company could even have people hired into it. A board of directors. that aren't owners. And... They would be subject to that and we would give up certain things to them. If we, you know, if we put somebody in place and we give them a contract, we're bound by it even though it's our company. Right? But the company itself can't be party to the thing that created it. The company doesn't exist. The contract is executed. Now the company exists. So the company could have been taking part in the formation. You got that. That's really important. Something no one talks about that we should be teaching at Civics 101. The states formed a union, the union did not form the states, is how you hear it put. But nobody explains it that way. So we're going to create this thing, and this thing's going to have power. And this thing's going to be able to act on our behalf and tell us what we can and can't do to some level. But the federal government was never supposed to do what it does today. The federal government wasn't built to have a Department of Education that tells a school in New Jersey what to do with itself. The federal government was not built to tell doctors how they should and should not practice medicine. The federal government wasn't built to tell us what kind of guns we can and cannot have. That was why they clarified that with the Bill of Rights, Second Amendment. That's not your place. But that Second Amendment did not apply to New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Georgia. That all happened over time with what's known as the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. So that actually meant that if New Jersey wanted to restrict firearms ownership at the time, they could. Now, they were also required as a state to have, by this constitutional agreement, all the states agreed we are going to have a republic as a central government, therefore all the states will also be smaller republics. They will all have a republican form of government. So New Jersey has to have a constitution. Georgia has to have a constitution. If they restricted their own ability to do that in their constitution – then they have to follow that. So we have to ask ourselves, if the federal government wasn't supposed to look anything like it does today, and it didn't, what was it supposed to do? Why would you be so concerned about making sure all the states had a reasonable say in what this government could do? Because its primary objectives were to be to see the sea to international commerce, interstate commerce, and national defense. That's what it was supposed to do. What does this mean if you're South Carolina or Georgia? What it means is that your federal government can start a war with another country, that you are obligated to send your young men to fight. And even if you didn't send them, that when that foreign power comes, you're the enemy, even if you didn't want to be part of the war. Just for one thing, it means that your federal government can make an agreement with the English, an importation agreement, that can limit your commerce. Do you understand that? The very thing you fought a revolution to get out of, the federal government can enter into a treaty or compact with another foreign power on trade on your behalf. And you have a limit to how much you can do to prevent it. This is why we have the Electoral College, and you have to add to it the two uh, houses within the the, the legislative branch, the House and the Senate. To give the larger populated states a bigger say, they made a House of Representatives, and they apportioned representatives based on the population of the states. So a state with a lot more people got more representatives on that side. To balance it, they say, well, every state gets two senators. And senators for a period of six years, and reps for a period of two. This created a massive check and balance, not legislative versus executive. It created a system of checks and balances for the states within the legislative branch alone. Further, until 1913... We did not elect senators. You went to your state polls, you voted for your state legislature, and they appointed two senators, each for a period of six years. This gave states more control over what the hell is going on. And you got to take this word, and it doesn't mean Republican, as in Republican Party, and it doesn't mean Ronald Reagan, it doesn't mean right-wing talking heads, It means the actual definition of the word conservative. The Senate was to be more conservative. Conservative as in when you're older, you're less likely to jump out of an airplane. You think about it a little bit first. When you're younger, you're more likely to sign a contract, join the military, jump out of an airplane. We become more conservative as we get older. That's how I mean the word conservative. The Senate was supposed to be far more conservative and far more beholden to the states. Then they added a final check on the whole system with the executive branch that the states would have a certain number of votes that would be based on the total number of representatives and senators that they had. And therefore, no state would have less than three electoral votes. They did this because that poor state that only has three electoral votes could be drugged into a war or a trade agreement Against their wishes. So they had to have something that made it worth making this bargain. The fact that today we want to reverse that is a direct consequence of the federal government having so much more power than it was ever supposed to have. The federal government is not supposed to be telling Texas what to do inside Texas's borders. The only thing it's supposed to tell Texas is, here's how we do business internationally. Here's the current situation internationally. Oh, and you want to do business with Oklahoma. Here's the guidelines for how two states do business. And if you guys disagree, we're the arbiter. That's it. We're supposed to put in the roads within interstate travel and see to all these things. Texas, you run your state. Georgia, you run your state. Florida, you run your state. New Jersey, you run your state. And here's the thing, if that wasn't the way it was going to be at the time, the original states that were party to the first constitution would not have signed on to it. And the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, if they had applied to the states equally as to the central government, they would have signed on to that either. This is the reason for the Electoral College. It was a restriction on the things the federal government could drag states into, not necessarily what it could do to them directly. Because they had almost complete autonomy all the way up to and even through and to a degree after the Civil War. And there's more but I can't go longer today. But that's what you have to understand that the the, the real issue with why we ended up with an electoral college in the first place was not only because of what the federal government could do as far as entangling alliances and warfare and trade agreements, but because we were never supposed to have a federal government that does what it does today. It actually shows you the problem. If you understand the original purpose for there, if you want to know more and really understand the entire concept of protection against tyranny of the majority, I recommend that you read federalist 10, federalist paper 10 with that, we've wrapped up the show and, uh, Want to remind you guys you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, tspaz.com dot Tspaz.com. Uh today's item of the day, I'm gonna go short again, trying to save my voice here. The ANOVA Suvi Precision Cooker. I'm just gonna say you can look at the review today. It's it's available up on the website. I love Sous cooking. It has changed my life a little bit. I'd like to talk about it more today, but I can't. But you can always help us no matter what you buy by just starting your online shopping at tspaz.com. Finishing up here, um, Journey Week, we're wrapping up Journey Week with a song called Faith in the Heartland. Uh, This was long after Steve Perry, who is like the iconic voice of Journey, Left Journey. And from 1998 to 2006, their their lead singer was a guy named Steve Aguirre, uh, who has a name that's very similar to Steve Perry, and he honestly looks a lot like him. has a voice very similar as well. Fit the band perfectly. This song is about... The crumbling heartland of the United States and people that are there wanting to still have something to believe in. I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is that while some areas are still crumbling, we're starting to see a revitalization of the heartland. And I'm not talking about you know Fox News uh, trumpeting you know the the economy or something. I'm talking about small towns all over the country, not just what we normally think of as the heartland, you know, the Midwest or whatever, little rural towns all over the place are springing back to life, developing new community identities. And I think it's because people have started to actually no longer buy into kind of the dream that's sold about moving to the city and everything being better with high density. People are starting to crave kind of that homestead life. They still want to go to a nice restaurant. So I think we maybe are having a resurgence of faith in the heartland. I at least wanted you to, after this week of my uh, not so great performance vocally, leave you with a little bit of an upbeat with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to, fight, how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.